All right, good morning. Thanks for coming out this morning. At first, when, you know, it was really light, I thought people's New Year's resolution stopped going to church. And I was like, wow, that's kind of a bummer. And then Ryan said, they're probably just out of town. Or running late, you know, any of those things can happen. Uh, so a couple quick announcements as we get started. First of all, men's discipleship tomorrow night. Uh, first Monday of the month, we meet 7.30 p.m. We're going through First Kings. There we are. All right, good. So we're going through, that was good though, I didn't remind you about uh, silence in your phones. But we're going through 1 Kings, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 6 tomorrow night. Um, We've been going pretty quickly through it, so it's been a lot of fun, so I'd encourage you guys to come out. It's probably the number one way for guys to make connections and have fellowship together, get to know one another, learn each other's names, (laughs) which is always a great thing in a church fellowship. So I'd encourage you guys to come out tomorrow night at 7.30 p.m. And then also the first Wednesday of the month we have prayer, so that prayer is from 7 to 8 on Wednesday night, and so I'd encourage you, if you're able to, to come out for that as well. All right, well, uh, as you can see, I've been avoiding going back to Psalms uh, for a while, and so we're going to have one more special study today as we kind of celebrate the new year. So would you open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Yeah. Yeah, so we were joking this week about this. Is I've kind of been wor- reworking some studies I've done years ago, and for this, and Brandy's like, "Man, you're going to be have a hard time next week in like remembering how to put together a study again." And so, hopefully, I haven't forgotten, and we'll get back into that prayerfully next week into Psalms. But just kind of as especially having a New Year's Day, I wanted to kind of look and look through the scriptures. What are some things that talks about being new? And I thought this was a good passage for us to work our way through this morning. So Colossians chapter three. Again, we'll be looking at verses five through seven. I'm sorry, 5 through 11, uh, but before we begin, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, do thank you for this time, this opportunity for us to come together. Lord, we do pray for those that are out of town today, that you would uh, be with them as they travel back, and thank you, Lord, for um, another year. Uh, that you've blessed us with and the opportunity to serve you. And Lord, though, as we look around at this fallen world, it's easy to be discouraged, Lord, and to fixate on all the negative things. But Lord, I pray that you would use even those, um, the fallenness of this world to uh, set our hearts and minds above. Lord, to look forward to your perfect kingdom, uh, to seek to do your will here. And so I pray that our hearts and minds would be open today. I pray, Lord, that if anyone is here today has not yet trusted in you, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself. Lord, and for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would continue to work on us, that you would continue to cleanse us of our sins, that you would help us to see things rightly, to obey you fully. Uh, Lord, that we might enjoy relationship with you and with one another um, every day until you take us home. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, usually, you know, when we put off things, and that's the title of this message is put off. We put off something because it's a bad thing. You know, oftentimes we put off that difficult conversation because we know that it's going to be emotionally draining. And so we see that person, we keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Or we put off that trip to the dentist because we don't want yet another filling. Or we put off that research paper that was assigned on the first day of class because our video games aren't going to play themselves. Uh, And so we have a tendency to put things off. And so those examples of putting off are forms of procrastination. It's a postponing of something that we should be doing. But with that said, there is a time to put off things. And so many people here starting today have these New Year's resolutions. 
I'm going to put off something, something that I've been doing in the past and I've been kind of leaning into it, but now it's time to put that off. And so if we're putting off something bad, that's a good thing. Now, unfortunately for us, so often our New Year's resolutions last to about, I don't know, January 17th. Uh, and so it's, it's hard for us because really we think, well, oh, I can just do this thing. But I'm going to talk a lot about putting off today from the scriptures here in Colossians. But I, I, I want you and me to understand that this putting off is only possible in the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I, I don't want you to leave today and say, well, Steve gave me a bunch more instru- instructions from the scriptures and I've just got to try to get it done. Now, it's, it's not you alone getting these things done. Definitely, you have a part to play, but in reality, we must be abiding in Christ. We must be trusting in him that he would empower us to get rid of those things that are not good for us so that we might walk more closely with him. And so this, is, this putting off that we're talking about today is getting rid of things that we should not be doing. And so here in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, Paul's going to call us as believers to put off sinfulness. And really in two kind of areas to think about. To put off our sinful attitudes and to put off our sinful actions that are not fitting for the born-again believer. And so as we consider this topic, we must remember that God the Father's goal for each and every believer is that we would become as much like Christ as possible. Please understand that. For you and I, because we like comfort and we like ease and we like those things, we think that God's goal for us is that our life would be as comfortable as possible. Or that God's goal for us would be just to make the path as straight as possible and easy as possible. That's not God's goal for us. God's goal for each and every believer is that you would become as much like Christ as possible. So it says in Romans 8, 29, that he's he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, if you know what it's like to be conformed to something, it's going to take some pain, right? When you think about a block of marble that Michelangelo would carve into something, that if you kind of think about that marble, if that marble had feelings, it would be painful. Be painful to be chiseled and worked on, but you see the end result is something beautiful. God is unwilling to be easy on you and me because he wants to make something beautiful out of us. He's not willing for us to remain that block of marble untouched by his hands. Instead, he wants to conform us to the image of his son. He wants to sculpt you and I to look as as most or as much like Christ as possible. Now, here's the problem. You and I are sinful. Christ is perfectly sinless. So there's a lot of work to be done. So it only makes sense that we should, please hear me, continually put off sinful attitudes and actions. This is not something to only do today or the first day of every year, but every day we get up and say, Lord, help me to put off these sinful things so that I might walk more closely with you. And we must understand, too, that God doesn't want to conform us into the image of his son merely because God is bored and has, wants something to do. God is never bored. God wants to conform us into the image of his son so that we can have as close a relationship with him as possible. No one had a closer relationship with the Father than the Son did. So if we want to have that relationship that we were built for, then God wants to conform us as much as possible into the image of his Son. All right, so with that said, let's look there at Colossians chapter 3. But what we're going to do for just a moment is we're going to back up a few verses because we want to get a little more context. So let's pick up to the the beginning of this chapter. And so we're going to read Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. So Paul writes, If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Okay, so please understand he's talking to believers, 
right? He's saying, for you as a believer, you were raised with Christ. You, you died with him at the cross, you were buried with him, and then you were raised with him. That it's a done deal, it's guaranteed that you and I are going to be resurrected. And then in some supernatural, spiritual way we can't understand, you and I are seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's a reserved, it's a done deal, it's going to happen. And so if that's going to be our place to live forever, if we're only going to be here, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and we fixate all our effort on time in this place, and we don't think about where we're going to live for eternity, well, that's foolish. And so he's saying, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Our natural tendency is to set our things on the mind of the earth. And we don't have to work on it, right? We just driving down and there's a billboard and right, oh yeah, you're right. I do need a Coca-Cola right now, right? It's, there's everywhere we are, there's this inundation of setting our mind on things of the earth, but we actually have to take effort in the power of the spirit and his empowering to say, I'm going to get my mind and my heart and my eyes above this fallen world onto God. And then verse three, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's exciting. Please understand, you and I are dead people. We're all dead people. That, that we have died with Christ, and so we're not to live our old fleshly lives anymore. We're to live this new life in Christ. We're to realize we're hidden with Christ in God, that that's where we are. And then he says, for when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You know, I, I love the, the Lord of the Rings, not to be confused with rings of power. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> I love the Lord of the Rings, and there's this coronation at the end, you know, where Aragorn finally comes into his own, his rightful place as king. But what's as, as beautiful as that is, at the end of that story, the thing is, is Aragorn's going to fade out and die. He can't remain that king forever. But you and I have a coronation waiting for us as believers, but it's a coronation that doesn't end. It's a glory that doesn't fade away. It never passes away. So we have that to look forward to, that there's this coming glory that we're going to receive because of what Christ has done. We're co-heirs with Christ. And so this wonderful thing, that that's what we're going toward. And so I'm setting you know, some time on verses 1 through 4 because it's going to set the scene for verses 5 through 11. You see, if we just look at verses 5 through 11, we're saying, well, here's just another list of things that Paul says for me to get rid of. <sighs> But if we understand verses 5 through 11 as let's put off these things because this much better thing is waiting for us, we can enjoy this relationship with God and what he has for us. We can become partakers of that glory here and now. Then we have the why behind it. The reason why you know, these, these amazing athletes that we watch on television, the reason why they give up certain things and the reason why they get up and run and the reason why they train is because they're going for glory. And so for you and I, the reason why we're giving up these things that are ultimately bad for us is so that we might receive a greater glory. And so once we look at things that way, it really changes. God wants us to put off things, not because he wants us to live less of a life, but because he wants to live a greater life, a more wonderful life. So here, verses 5 through 11, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. 
But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is in all and, whoops, in all, is all and in all. Okay, all right, so I've divided this passage, verses 5 through 11, into two sections. We're going to spend the most of our time in this first section, verses 5 through 9, which is out with the old, and then we're going to look at verses 10 through 11, which is in with the new. Now, we don't have time to kind of develop the in with the new because Paul talks about it more in Colossians chapter 3. So if you're interested in that, when I taught through this years ago, you can find that online. You can study more. You can read on your own to kind of focus on that, that newness. But we're going to focus primarily on the putting off today. So let's move into our first section that's out with the old in verses 5 through 9. And Paul begins with, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, you know, when I was little, I used to love to watch Sesame Street, okay, and learn my ABCs and my numbers and all those good things on there on Sesame Street. I learned how to be grumpy from Oscar. I learned how to do all kinds of wonderful things. Now, the thing about, they, they always said on Sesame Street was cooperation, right, is working together. And, and so here's the thing about the Christian life. It's actually cooperative, Okay? God gives us the power we need, the resources we need, the guidance we need, but we actually still have to cooperate. We have to participate in this. So notice what Paul is saying to believers. He's saying to us as believers, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. He doesn't say, hey, believer, sit on the couch. God's going to do all the work. You do nothing, and God's going to do it all. No, when it comes to living out our life as Christians... As Ephesians 2.10 tells us, hey, that, that we're to walk out these good works that he's prepared for. So you and I have a part to play in this. There's a cooperation that we are to contribute. So the imagery here, as he's kind of think about these members, are putting to death the parts of our body that commit evil practices. Now, this is figurative language for killing those sinful things in us. Right? That's very important. Now, Jesus used similar language to this in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read it for you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. Jesus said this radical thing. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, as you guys hear that buzzing, right, that we have gremlins. Okay, we have all kinds of sound issues, so we're just going to have to work through it, all right? Um, but what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5 is that this physical dismemberment that he seems to be advocating is not the real story, right? When he talks about your right eye or your right hand, in the Hebrew mind, your right eye is kind of your best sight. Your right hand is kind of your best ability. So, so we know that this can't be physical dismemberment for a simple reason. Jesus can't be saying pluck out your, your eye physically and cut off your right hand physically because we know that even if you were physically disabled, you could still sin, right? You could still sin in your heart. You could be blind and still lust. So, so that's really important for us to understand that what is, he going, what is he talking about behind this? In fact, I came across this interesting story. One commentator writes that in centuries past in England, if a pickpocket was caught 
and convicted, his right hand was cut off. And then if he was cut, caught again, his left hand was cut off. Well, there was record of a guy who started picking pockets with his teeth. Both hands were cut off, and he was still a pickpocket. And so we understand here that what Jesus is really speaking about is about the heart, right? That we should be willing to kill off anything in us, any desire for going after the wrong thing. It's not about physical dismemberment. Jesus made this clear. Let me read it for you in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. He says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. And so we need to pray for a changed heart, a changed desires. They make fun of me at the ministry team meetings because I always suggest a certain book, but I'm going to do it again here. A Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. I would encourage you. You don't have to agree with everything that Dallas Willard taught. I don't, you're not going to agree with everything that I teach. But the fact of the matter is he talks in there about we, we really need to have a changed desires. It's our desires that are the problem. When we actually physically sin, it's actually just the outworking, the physical outworking of our, what's in our heart. So if we want to change our behaviors, then that the heart attitude has to change first. It needs to be from the inward out. That's why the Pharisees' type of doing life didn't work. They thought, well, you know what? If we wear fancy clothes, if we appear to men to be righteous, if we do all of these things, if we're scrupulous about our tithing, that'll fix things. That won't fix things. You and I won't be fixed by wearing better clothes. You and I won't be fixed by just changing how we behave when certain people are looking. You and I will only be changed as God moves in and begins to change our hearts, and we cooperate in that. All right, let's continue on in Colossians 3, 5. We're going to find four elements of sinful sensuality that must be put to death. And they're fornication, uncleanness, passion, and evil desire. And there's a lot of kind of, um, kind of crossover with these words. But let's look at this first word. It's fornication. It's a Greek word, porneia, from which we get the English word pornographic. And so it really, it's, it's kind of a catch-all phrase that speaks of every type of immoral sexual relationship. That's really the attitude here. It's any and every type of sexual contact that's outside of a one-man, one-woman marital relationship. That's considered sexual immorality. Now, at this point, as we kind of, this is a, you know, a touchy subject, we understand that in our current culture, but it's always a question of authority, right? What's the authority? And so I want you, wherever, you know, you, as you sit in this room, or, to think about what's my authority. So often, what we do is we make ourselves the authority. You know, my life and my experience is what I want. I'm the authority. So the, really the question is, is the Bible our authority or are we our authority? Okay? Now, I believe the Bible is our authority because the Bible is the word of God. Now, who's the authority behind the Bible? God, of course. Okay? But if a person says, well, the Bible's not my authority because those are just words, what they're really saying is, well, I'm my authority, but, but who gives you the right to be your authority? <laughs> so you have to understand that this is always a question of authority. How I live my life is a question of whose authority am I under? And if you say to yourself, well, I'm under my own authority, okay, that's your choice, but we know that that's not ultimately true. Because if you say you're under your own authority and you drive 100 miles per hour through a school zone, Okay, pretty soon people are going to be coming for you. Okay, and you're going to realize, huh, I'm actually not my authority. There's authorities over me, higher than me. So as we kind of start tracking that back, we have to ask ourselves, who is my ultimate authority? 
If God is my ultimate authority, then I need to do what he says. So it's really important for us to kind of consider because oftentimes we have kind of this hodgepodge of we believe this and that and the other, not based on the scriptures, but just because that's what we think. Now, let's move on to the second element of sinful sensuality here, and that's uncleanness. And it speaks of physical or moral impurity. And so this is actually a wider and subtler word than the word porneia because it really speaks of the imagination, the words, the actions of the immoral heart and mind. And so it's, so it's just kind of the, the filthiness, the grossness of our minds and what we think about. Then the next word is passion. And this word could be translated lust. It speaks of an inordinate affection, an obsession. It's a passion or lust that leads to sexual excesses, to sexual contact that happens outside of the marital relationship. Now, I know as, you're, you know, as we're moving through this, you're just like, this is not how I wanted to spend New Year's Day. <laughs> Hearing about all of these things. You know, but, but this, I want to come back just for just a moment to this under authority. If you remember, there was a, a centurion who sent people to Jesus asking if Jesus could heal his servant. And he was a Gentile, you know, a Roman soldier. And as Jesus was coming near, he sent other people and said, I didn't, I didn't want you to come to my house because I realize that you have authority and you can speak the word. And I'm just a man under authority. And people tell me what to do and I do it. And I tell other people to do it and they do it. He understood authority. And, and I believe that that guy's one of the unsung heroes of the scriptures because he's a guy who understood authority. And so I want you to know that as I'm kind of traveling through this passage, and it's not a lot of things that are necessarily very inspiring for the first day of the new year, as I was led to this passage, I'm teaching this this morning because I'm a man under authority. I I believe with all my heart that God is my authority. Now, I often disobey him. I often think and do things and treat people contrary to, to what he says, and and I know that he chastens me and will chasten me for that. But as I speak hard things, it's not because I want to beat people up. It's because, first of all, I want to obey my authority, but then also I believe that as we understand truth and obey truth, that's the most loving thing that I can do for anybody. The most loving thing that I can do for any person is to tell them the truth. So that's what I'm doing here. And so, so I'm going to kind of talk about this subject for a little bit more. Would you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for just a moment? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. And this is a very, very interesting passage because, again, it's speaking about, you know, sexual immorality. But it's very intriguing because as you're turning there, it's just a little bit to the right. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 3 through 6. So often Christians ask this, what's the will of God for me? What's the will of God for my life? And oftentimes when we ask those questions, we just want a really specific answer, right? Like we're thinking about moving, you know, to, to, you know, to, to Dallas or to, you know, to moving to, you know, Decatur or whatever. And we're like, well, which of those places should I move? And that's what we want. Or which of these jobs should I take? And that's what we want. But it's interesting. So often the will of God is actually kind of in these broader subjects. And, and this is an often overlooked passage on the will of God. So 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3, here it is. For this is the will of God. Oh, well, there it is. I've been looking for the will of God. What is it? This is the will of God, your sanctification. This sanctification is that process of increasing holiness, of increasing Christ-likeness. What we talked about earlier, about being conformed into the image of his son. So this is God's will for us. 
our sanctification, our increasing Christ-likeness, our increasing, you know, putting off of things. And then what's the tie-in? He says, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Wow. What's the will of God for my life? Is that I would be sanctified in this area. That I would be like Christ in this area. And, and, you know, I've I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been reading books about this and studying this. It's interesting and, and hopefully I'm not too graphic here, but, you know, we live in a culture that, you know, sexuality is the highest good. Jesus Christ was a, the greatest person who ever lived. He never had sex. So it can't be that you and I highest good is sexuality. It can't be that. That can't be the key, because if the greatest person who ever lived never engaged in a sexual relationship, we can't be that, right? We know that the Apostle Paul, he lives without that. And so, so, so it's very important for us to know that this is the will of God. Now, this is so contrary to our culture, but please understand why sexuality is pushed so much in our culture is two reasons. Number one, it says that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. So the devil's working to, to, to try to disqualify people from walking with Christ. But secondly, is because culture can make money off of sexuality. That's why they're pushing it. If, if the culture could make more money off of other things, they would push other things. But that's where the money is. So, so God wants us to abstain from sexual immorality. And then you know, look at verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. His vessel means your body. Possess your own body in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one, and this is so important, verse 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. So Paul is actually saying that when have sexual con- contact outside of marriage, it's actually stealing. It's defrauding. It's taking from someone else. So these are radical things. And because we're so immersed and baptized in a culture of filth, it comes across as prudish or puritanical or this or that. But what it actually is, is releasing us from prison. You know, if, if you saw an animal, you know, sinking into a swamp, about to drown, covered with muck, and you pulled that animal out of the muck, and you cleaned them off, and you set them free in a meadow, and you let them run wild and have a good time, you wouldn't say, you're mistreating that animal. You say, you're saving it. But people in our culture are in this swamp of sinfulness, and they're drowning, and they're muddy. And what the Lord wants to do is he says, I want to take you out of that. I want to cleanse you from that. I want to give you a a new future and a new hope and a new way of looking at life. Something different. That's what God wants to rescue us from that life of degradation. Now, as we can go back now to Colossians 3, 5, we're going to look at the fourth and final element of sinful sensuality that must be put to death, and it says evil desire. So this evil desire, it's a perverse craving for what is forbidden. And this is very important for us to understand. If you do any kind of research into people who give themselves over continually to sexual sin, well, what they kind of went after at first begins to no longer satisfy, so they go further and further and further off. So it's important to understand this. It is this wicked, self-serving, aggressive lust that leaves nothing but destruction in its path. Now, you've probably heard different stories about someone selling their soul to the devil. 
It's very popular in culture. And, and one of the most famous stories is actually this story called Faust. And so it's a, it's a story that we go through at school, and, and we're about to, to get into it as we go back to school. And, and it's a very important story. So what happens is there's a professor, Professor Faust, and he's a man of, of, of learning. But you know what? He gets kind of dissatisfied with learning. He just wants to experience life to the full. So this, this individual shows up named Mephistopheles. And Mephistopheles in the story actually is Satan, but he's disguising himself. And so what, he makes a deal with Faust. So Faust basically says, I'll sell you my soul. And, and here's what I want from you, Mephistopheles. I want you to give me everything I desire. And if ever there comes a point, Mephistopheles, that I don't want to live any longer, when I say it's enough, then you can take me to hell with you. That's the deal he makes. Now, by the time you get to the end of Faust, you'll find that Faust has destroyed everyone around him. You see, what happens is he begins to lust after this much younger woman and begins a sexually immoral relationship with her. Well, through that process of time, he ends up giving, you know, they end up giving the mom this sleeping pill so they can have their sexual morality. Well, they give her too much one night, and she ends up dying. And then the, this girl, Gretchen, who he has this physical relationship with, her brother wants to defend her honor, and Faust ends up killing him in a duel. And then after that, you know, um, the, Gretchen ends up killing her child, that she has from this illicit relationship and that she's about to be executed for that. And so you see in this story, it's a wonderful story because it shows that this one man's obsession with sexual morality ends up destroying everyone around her. So we have to understand that. Sexual sin, it promises freedom and enlightenment and all these things, but all it actually delivers is death. And we know that, right? The wages of sin is death. And so as we continue on, I want to reread what we've covered so far. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire. Please understand his audience are Christians. Right? He's writing this to Christians. So he's calling on believers to put these things to death, to execute them, to show no mercy. That's what you and I are to do. So those things that we see from this list that still remain in our lives, we're to go before the Lord and say, Lord, take those things out of me. I want to put them off, but you need to help me with this. And we must admit, honestly, that this is easier said than done. I love how Alexander McLaren, a church leader from the past, put it, quote, it is far easier to cut off the hand which after all is not me, than to sacrifice passions and desires, though they be my worst self, are myself. So it's really hard. So this is not an easy thing that God calls us to do. But we have to realize that if we've made our identity sinful behaviors of any sort, we must realize that those need to be put off because they're not our true identity. As believers, Christ is our true identity. So we think that if I let go of this sin, then what's going to happen is I'm going to lose my identity. No, you're going to gain your identity. You're going to gain your true identity in Christ. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. He said, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So we're not to give space for that. Now, please, as I'm, as I'm passionately sharing these things, please don't think that I'm sharing from on high. In all honesty, I believe I'm the worst person I know. 
I may not act out all the, the wickedness of my fallen heart, but I am fallen. I, I need Christ as much as anybody needs Christ. Okay, my, my sins needed to be relieved by Christ at the cross. I need his help every day if I'm going to treat anyone rightly. So, so I'm saying these things not as someone who's arrived, who's achieved, but someone who needs these things just as much as anybody. And so when, when Paul says make no provision for the flesh there in Romans 13, he's basically saying give no space to it. And this is really important. It takes a passion to conquer a passion. If we're going to put off these things, then our passion for God, we must have a passion for God to conquer our passion for sin. Now, let's move on. Therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So let's talk about this, because covetousness really is kind of where it all starts. Covetousness, it's not merely the desire to possess more than one has, but more than one ought to have, particularly that which belongs to someone else. Most of the economy runs on covetousness, right? That's what, that's what advertisements are to get you to covet. I didn't know I needed that thing, but now I do. And so it's important for us to understand that. And then this word idolatry is actually literally image worship. It's the worship of false gods. So it's important for us to understand that as we kind of give in to covetousness, give in to idolatry, I just, if I only had that new thing and got it for it, it's not going to satisfy. You and I need to tell ourselves daily, I'm not going to be satisfied with material things. I'm just not. You know, you're probably already beginning to be dissatisfied with what you got at Christmas. <laughs> you know, there's already some things like, oh, it doesn't really work as well as I thought it was going to work. or it's this or that. That's just how it is. Because material things are transitory. Material things are, are, are unsatisfying. So let's break the cycle and not continue to think that those things will satisfy us. Now, all of those things that we read about in verse 5, they're celebrated in our culture, but they're displeasing to God. So verse 6 tells us, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So those, the, those who never repent, continue on in fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, are all things that provoke the wrath of God. And so God is righteous. It's not simply his nature to let things go. His justice must be satisfied. And so sometimes we think, well, I really love this sin, whatever it is, and it's a part of me, so God will just be okay with that. He's not okay with that. God can't let things go. Think about this scenario. You go home today after church, and someone has moved into your house. They've moved in. All your stuff is sitting on the front lawn. All their stuff is inside, and you're like, I knew I shouldn't have gone to church today. No, no, it's just a scenario. Okay? They've changed the locks, and they say that's their home now. Would you just let that go? <laughs> Would you just be like, well, that's kind of a bummer, uh, and just kind of go on your merry way? No, you wouldn't just let that go. You, you would fight that. Well, if you can't just let that go, how can God let sin go? It's his universe, right? It's, it's his place. Please realize that everyone and everything belongs to God. Everyone and everything. And for fallen human beings to do whatever they want with the lives that he allows them to live is tantamount to theft and rebellion. And he can't just let it go. The fact of the matter, it's hard for you and I to take in, is that our lives have never belonged to us. 
Our lives never have belonged to us. They always belong to him. And so all sin is a form of theft and rebellion. It's a desire to do what I want with something that does not belong to me. You know, if I go up to you and I take your phone and chunk it into the, the parking lot and break it to pieces, well, you're probably going to punch me and then not come to church anymore. It's probably what's going to happen because I took something that doesn't belong to me and did whatever I want with it. Well, here's the, the reality. Our bodies, our lives don't belong to us. So we don't get to do whatever we want with it. If we choose to go down that path and say, well, there is no God, I'm going to do what I want, and, well, then we're going to have to pay for that. That's the reality. So it's important for us to understand these things. Now, again, there in verse 6, it says, because of these things, the wrath is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And that sons is just a general term, right, for people. So we could say sons and daughters of disobedience. And it's clear that God's going to pour out his righteous wrath on the sons of disobedience. So those who, are, who refuse to put their trust in Christ will suffer God's eternal wrath. And we don't have time to turn there today, but I would, I would encourage you, Revelation chapter 20, <laughs> verses 11 through 15, it's the great white throne judgment. That's the reality. Now, I come to that passage a lot. I teach in my classes. And so I was examining my own heart and be like, well, why do I talk about this so much? You know, why do I talk about the lake of fire so much? What, what's behind it? Am I just trying to scare people? I'm not trying to scare people. If you go this summer and you take a trip to the Grand Canyon and there are signs that say, beware of the edge, okay? If you fall over the edge, you will die. That's not a scare tactic. Right? That's just trying to protect you from what could happen if you're unwise. And so whenever I'm sharing about the great white throne judgment and letting people know that if they refuse Christ, they're going to be judged according to their works and those works won't measure up and they're going to suffer eternal wrath, that's not a scare tactic. It's, you know, it's a loving thing of warning you, hey, there's a cliff ahead. And there's an escape, though. The escape is trust in Christ. Now, as we consider this challenging subject, though, of the wrath of God, it's important to understand that each and every person comes into this world as a son or daughter of disobedience. Okay? Nobody comes into this world as good people. So we're all born into this world as sinners whose natural inclination is rebellion. If you don't think that's true, please volunteer for a children's church class. You're going to see. You know, you don't have to teach your kids to be sinners. You know, a husband and wife who are sinners have kids, and those kids end up being sinners. And it goes on and on and on. That's the reality. The sad truth of fallen humanity is that we are all born as sons and daughters of disobedience. But here's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to stay that way. We don't have to continue to be a son or daughter of disobedience. When we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future, and we become adopted children of God. Paul wrote this in Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. You can turn back there if you want. Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14, he says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light and has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So I'd encourage you with those words. I would encourage you to spend some time meditating on Colossians 1, 12 through 14, about how you're now an inheritor with Christ, about how you've been taken out of that power of darkness, conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of his love, that you have the forgiveness of sins. Those are wonderful truths. Now, 
The thing is, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are still currently a son or daughter of disobedience. You're living in rebellion, but I would encourage you, lay down your arms. Give up the fight. Surrender to your rightful Lord. Humbly ask him for forgiveness, and he will forgive you. And thankfully, this is what the Colossians had done. Let's move on to verses 6 and 7. It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. But look at wonderful verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. It's beautiful. He says, you used to be like this, guys, but you're not like that anymore. The world wants to lie to you, and, and Satan wants to lie to you and say, you can never change. You can never be different. This is who you are. This is, this is, that, that's not reality. The scriptures tell you that you were a son or daughter of disobedience and you once lived and walked in disobedience, but it doesn't have to be that way anymore. And so they lived in those sins. It was a normal course of their life. But as believers, they put off those sinful attitudes and actions, and now they were walking in obedience to Christ. And so they were to move out of the house of sin and now live their lives in the house of God. So... um. I want to have you turn one other place that's really important on this issue. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to look at verses 9 through 11 for just a moment. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And so he gives some really bad news in verses 9 and 10. Okay, And if we're honest, every one of us are found somewhere in verses 9 and 10. The, the sins of our life, the, the sins that, that, that were kind of a part and parcel, who we were before we came to Christ, are on this list. So verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. We're all on there. All of us are on there somewhere. And I love in the, in the Bible that I used to use, a paper Bible, it had all of verses 9 and 10 were at the bottom of the page. It's bad news. And I loved it because I turned the page and verse 11 was at the top of the next page. It says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. No matter where we find ourselves in that list, God can cleanse us of that. God can change us. He can make us new. I can't do it for you, but God can do it for you. And so it's important for us as we witness to people who are lost in sin, let's share the hope that they can be saved, that they can be changed, that things can be different, that they can live a life of victory in the Spirit, and we know it's possible because we've experienced it. We've experienced that newness of life. All right, let's turn back to Colossians 3. Move on in verse 8. It says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. So again, put off these sinful actions and attitudes. Well, why is he telling them that again? Because it's a continual conflict. You and I are going to live in continual conflict. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why does he say that? Because every day we need to do this. Every day we need to put off. Every day we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It's daily. The Christian life is a daily battle. The day is coming when you won't have to fight, and that place where you won't have to fight is called heaven. But as long as you are here, no matter what age you are, no matter your physical state, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a daily putting off, you know, a putting off of sins and putting on the armor of God. 
Now, so we want to walk in obedience to the scriptures and the power of the spirit moment by moment as active participants in this. Actively putting off and then actively following Christ. So this is what's fitting for, a, for one who claims to be a follower of Christ. All right, now he's going to go through a list of these things that we're to put off. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. So we'll move quickly through these. This anger, it speaks of this kind of a habitual anger. Um, it speaks of a desire for revenge. It includes unforgiveness. It includes bitterness. And so it's whenever we feel like someone's done wrongly and we have an HD recording of them in our minds and we just keep playing it back and rewinding it and fast forwarding it and slow mowing it. And then we tell other people about it, about all that's been done to us. Here's how the key that we need to have of putting this off is we need to pray. Instead of telling the story about how other people have done to us, let's pray for them. Instead of plotting revenge, let's pray. Instead of wallowing in bitterness, let's pray. And then it moves on from anger to wrath. Wrath is actually the boiling agitation of feelings. It's a sudden and violent anger. So where this, it, it's, it's kind of being short-fused. And you know what? Some of us, you know, we make excuses because we're short-fused. Well, my family came from such and such nation, and they're known for being angry. Um, and so that's why I'm a wrathful person. But, but the reality is we've trained ourselves to be wrathful. If you and I are wrathful people, we've trained ourselves. You know why? It's a way of manipulating people. When you and I fly off the handle at people, it's a way to shut them down so we can get our way. And, and so that's, it takes retraining. If we want to put that off and no longer be wrathful, we need to learn to be patient. We need to learn to walk in the spirit. We need to learn to value people instead of manipulating people. Next word is malice, which is a desire to injure. It's a desire to hurt others through words or deeds. Instead of wanting the best for a person, malice wants the worst for a person. It's the opposite of what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, when he says, I want you guys to love your enemies. I want you to do good to the people who go against you. And so please understand, Jesus has called us to share the gospel with the lost, to evangelize. Evangelism and malice are diametrically opposed. Because evangelism says, I want the best for a person, their eternal salvation. Malice says, I want the worst for a person. I want them to suffer as much as possible. So it's important for us to say, no, I, I don't want to live in malice. I want to live in love. Next word is blasphemy. And it's verbal abuse against someone, which is interesting is we often think about blasphemy as directed toward God. And that's true, but it actually can be trans also directed toward a person. It's speaking evil of another person. That's what it really means. And so instead of doing that, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And then nextly, or finally, in there in verse 8, he says, and remove filthy language out of your mouth. This speaks of foul speaking, abusive and obscene speech. The idea is how we spoke as unbelievers shouldn't be how we speak as believers. There should be a difference in our vocabulary. And I think we would be wise also, and this is an exhortation for all of us, to not only guard what comes out of our mouth, but actually what comes in our ears. Because if we watch shows or listen to music or kind of these things that, that just, just obscene language and filthy language, then that kind of stuff is, is in our hearts and minds, and we end up using that on other people. And that just, it's not how, how we should do it. I mean, think about all that you read of Jesus, and then there was one episode where Jesus cussed somebody out. I mean, you'd be like, 
what's happening here. That doesn't fit with his life. So it is for you and I as believers. It doesn't fit for a believer. All right, let's move on to verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another. Now, it's interesting, this word lie is in the Greek a present imperative, which means it's to stop something that was currently going on. Paul knew the Colossians were lying to each other. Why do you know that? Because they were human, (laughs) right? And we have a tendency to lie to one another. So he's saying, don't do that. So an application for you and I is to ask ourselves, are we lying to fellow believers? Are we pretending to be something that we're not? Are we hiding sins that we refuse to repent of? And then he says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And so with this this old man, right, these old things, ways of doing things, let's do something different. Let's live a new life, a new perspective, new affections, new desires. Again, we don't have time to turn there, but on your own, you can take note of this if you like and read it. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 22, it talks about how we're no longer slaves of sin. But now we're slaves of righteousness. We've been set free from sin. And so it's really important for us to remember this because Satan wants to lie to you and tell you that you don't have the power to do the right thing. That you don't have the power to be something different. You don't have the power to be kind. You're a victim. All these things, that's not true. God gives you the power to do the right thing. What I found in my life, why I don't often have the power to obey or to to do what he wants me to do is because I'm disobeying in some area of my life. Some area of my life, God has told me clearly, this is what I want you to do, and I'm saying no. And so what happens? I don't have power. But once I walk in obedience to him, then he gives me the power. It's kind of like someone who always goes and crashes the car. Are you going to give him the keys to the car? (laughs) No. God says, hey, drive your car right, and I'll let you go more places. And so it's important for us to understand that. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so for us, as believers, we shouldn't walk in the ways of this old man. Now, maybe you're uh, in a place today where you're saying, well, I'm just continually walking in sinful attitudes and actions and disobedience. I'm doing all these things. There's really two choices. Number one, if you're doing that, you're, you're a Christian who's walking in disobedience. You're not putting off the old man, and so you're not walking in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Or it could be that you're here today and you don't have any victory over these things because you've never truly been born again. You've never trusted in Christ. But either way, a change is needed. If you're a believer who's walking in disobedience, then please repent. Please turn around. Let go of those things. Get between you and the Lord and say, Lord, take these things from me. I repent of them. They're wrong. I want to live a right life. And God's going to give you the power to do that. And if you're not a believer, then same thing, repent. Get before the Lord. Confess to him your sins. Ask him for forgiveness. And he will take those things from you. And you'll be born again by the Spirit. All right. With that said, let's move into our final section here in with the new verses 10 through 11. We'll move quickly. And he says, and you've put on the new man. So putting off the old man and putting on the new man are actually these continuous things that we're to do. We're to continually put off the old man, continually put on the new man. And I love the way that Paul talks about it there in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Again, you can read it on your own, but what I want to point out is he says that we've put off our former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and we've put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I know there's a lot going on here, and I've shared a lot of words, but but I want to to kind of begin to draw to a close. I want to say this. This is possible. 
This is doable. This is not something that is just a bunch of words to fill up time on a Sunday morning because it's my job. No, this is possible that you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what place you're in right now, you can put off the old man in the power that Christ provides. You can put on the new man in the power that Christ provides. You can live a life of obedience to the Lord. So it continues on there in verse 10. He says, and we've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So this verse lets us know that it's a continual or constant renewal that's taking place in believers' lives as they increase in the true knowledge of God. We're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And so Paul talks about this in Romans 12 too, about this don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I would encourage you, read your Bible, listen to sermons, listen to to Christian books, read Christian books, fill your mind, renew your mind with good stuff, with truth, because the world wants to get into your mind every moment of every day. False ideas are coming in all the time, so the only way is to fight back, fight against those things by filling your minds with truth. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, this idea that the more we spend time with the Lord and seek the Lord and see the Lord, as we spend time with Him, we become like Him. Your mom warned you about this, right? You're going to become like who you hang out with. You hang out with Christians, you hang out with the Lord, you're going to become more like them. That's the reality. Let's move on to our final verse. It says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. In Christ, all the old barriers are done away with, and each and every believer is equally a child of God. Each and every believer is a partaker of all that's offered in this familial bond. Race, religious upbringing, cultural differences, social status, none of these are factors of distinction when it comes to Christ. The racial barrier of Greek or Jew, black or white, Hispanic or Asian, no consequence in Christ. The religious barrier of being circumcised or uncircumcised, of growing up with religious ritual or not, is of no consequence in Christ. The cultural barrier of being a barbarian, a Scythian, whether one is socially sophisticated or is of no con- or, or not, is of no consequence in Christ. The social barrier of being slave or free, being owned by another or being a free citizen, of being poor or rich, is of no consequence in Christ. None of that matters. And all of these distinctions are no barrier to fellowship because Christ is all in all. I love how one commentary puts it. It says, in the realm of the new self, that is where the image of God is truly reflected. These distinctions have no real significance. Differences, to be sure, remain in the Christian community, but not in such a way as to be barriers to the fellowship. To the extent that Christians do not permit them to be barriers, they are acting out of character, or where they do permit them to be barriers. Christ is the great principle of unity. In him, all differences merge. All distinctions are done away. Christ is all and in all is a vigorous and emphatic way of saying that Christ is absolutely everything. Loyalty to him must take precedence over all earthly ties. In heaven, there's not going to be these different sections. (laughs) There's not going to be, well, you want the traditional service or the contemporary service? There's not going to be any of those things. In Christ, we're all one. 
So I want to wrap up with these questions before we move into our time of communion. Number one, are you willing to put off whatever God instructs you to put off, knowing that he'll, he will empower you to obey? Because this is, this is the key to the scriptures. The scriptures tell us a lot of things that we should do, but our willingness is, is the boundary, right? Are we willing to do that? Because I have found out in 25 years of being a believer, God never makes me do anything. He doesn't. He instructs me. He exhorts me. He chastens me. He chastises me. But he gives me the choice always. So you and I, are we willing to put off whatever God instructs us to put off, knowing that he's going to empower us to obey? And then number two, are you willing to put on the new man? Are you willing to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Christ to the glory of God and to the benefit of all mankind?